0: How was the American Army created at the beginning of the Revolutionary War? Why was General Washington chosen as Commander-in-Chief? And what were the weapons and tactics used? For more insights and discussion, stay tuned.
1: Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, we begin a three-part series of discussions on the Revolutionary War, and joining me is colonial war historian Dr. Glenn Williams. Welcome, Glenn. Uh, Thank you, Lee. Glad to be here. Now, a little bit about uh, Dr. Williams. Uh, He is a retired Army officer. He was an infantry officer. He was an Army ranger. And he's a published author on the colonial and Revolutionary War era. And he has extensive experience working historical locations. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You were historian and curator on the USS Constellation in Baltimore Harbor. Right. You worked for the National Park Service uh, for their American Battlefield Protection Program and your assistant curator at the Baltimore Civil War Museum and President Street Station. Right. That's all, right. Okay, so, I mean, so much history there. <laughs> and then you joined the Center of Military History in 2004, and one of your first projects was working as the, I guess, the-, the Project the, officer. The project officer for the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial. So, um, what, what am I missing? What, what do you need to add here?
1: Uh, I wound, uh, also ran the Army Commemorations Office, uh, especially for the uh, Bicentennial of the War of 1812, uh, and the semi-sesquicentennial uh, <laughs> of the Civil War, and uh, worked a little bit on the centennial of World War I, and uh, started the project for the semi quincentennial or 250th. Army birthday as well as uh, the commemoration for the Revolutionary War before retiring.
0: Right. So we are coming up um, – it's just a couple of years away from the 250th anniversary for, or commemoration for the Revolutionary War. And I know you've kicked that off here for us here at the Center of Military History. Um, but um, – so I, I think you're a like, perfect person to be here today to to start talking about the American Revolution. So before we get into the actual revolution itself, I want to talk a little bit about the beginnings. How did we get there, at least as an army? So talk to me about what was the American army like pre-revolutionary war? I believe it had to do with militias.
1: Yes. uh, uh, Most of the colonies, uh, except for Pennsylvania, had a regular militia establishment. Uh, This comes from an English tradition that started – several centuries ago with uh, something called the Assize of Arms, uh, where free men were required to have weapons, uh, train occasionally and assemble on the king's command to form an army. Mm -hmm. Uh, We brought that uh, tradition to the colonies when the first settlers got here, and they established uh, militia, not only for their own community defense but also for collective defense mm-hmm. and from these militia organizations sometime the king would call for standing armies from among them militia and the volunteers were taken from the militiamen uh, like during the French and Indian War mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then returned back to their militia status so we had a militia establishment at the very beginning and it's from that militia tradition Um, that the U.S. Army grew. In fact, uh, the National Guard uh, traces its lineage through the the, the first muster of Massachusetts Bay militiamen uh, back in the 17th century.
0: Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that's what we looked like as an army was all these individual militias. Right. Not one combined standing army in the United
1: States. No. When we did have standing forces, they were commanded by... They came under the British establishment.
0: All right. So now talk us through the crises that led up to the forming of the army for the American Revolution.
1: Uh, Well, as we all know, uh, the French and Indian War, which was – the theater in North America of the Seven Years' War left uh, Great Britain with a big war debt, which they had to repay. Now, it's a, a, a misstatement to say that they taxed America, they being the British Parliament, taxed America to pay that debt. What they did was try to cut expenses for the home government by taxing uh, the American colonies to pay for their own administration and defense, which uh, the colonists says hey you know we have our own militia we can defend ourselves uh, we can raise our own taxes and what raised the ire of the colonists was parliament pass imposed taxes by passing laws that bypass the general assemblies of the 13 colonies which the colonists thought was unconstitutional they should have been taxed by their own consent according to british tradition by their own uh, elected representatives in those lower houses of assembly and the british Uh, revenue laws bypass that. So did that lead to the establishment of the
0: Continental Congress?
1: Eventually, yes. As the uh, uh, several laws, the Stamp Act, the the Townsend duties, uh, things got progressively worse. Uh, Those were repealed. Um, The Tea Act was enacted as a way of raising revenue to pay for that uh, administration. Uh, As we all know, the Boston Tea Party occurred, which the British came down pretty uh, Mm heavy-handedly, closing the port of Boston and with what we call the coercive acts or, or sometimes called the intolerable acts which prompted uh, the, uh, uh, the colonies to get together in the First Continental Congress in September of 1774. Okay,
0: 1774. And what was the, um, the colonists doing to oppose um, the, the British rule at the time?
1: Okay. The, the colonists mainly opposed these taxes by uh, making associations to uh, refuse to import and pay for British imports, uh, or to export American uh, uh, raw materials that were used by British uh, industry, and. Uh, um, they, they organized what was called the Continental Association uh, to oppose uh, these and to have these non-importation, non-exportation acts. And the, the real catalyst, I would think, uh, was the second of the coercive acts called the Massachusetts Government Act, which abrogated Massachusetts' royal charter. And the other colony said if the British government can do that to Massachusetts, they mm-hmm. can do it to the rest of us. So they banded together the First Continental Congress for collective action.
0: And at what point were the British getting really concerned about the militias um,
1: that maybe caused them to fear these militias? Uh, Well, the First Continental Congress, when it formed the Continental Association, uh, recommended to the 13 colonies that they establish what were called independent companies of militia. These were out of the authority uh, of the royal governors and their job was to protect the committees that oversaw these non-importation non-exportation acts. Uh, and also when the, uh, um, when the British abrogated the, the, the Massachusetts charter, uh, the Massachusetts House of Representatives broke away, formed their own shadow government, started mm-hmm. collecting their own taxes, stockpiling their own weapons, and organizing the militia under their authority and not the royal governors. And So that's mm-hmm. what really got them concerned. And this kind of leads
0: into that fateful day of April 19th, 1775, which we now know as the, the battles of Lexington and Concord because what The the British went on an expedition to find weapons and and ammunition, if you can explain what happened that day. General
1: Gage, who is the commander-in-chief of British forces in North America as well as the royal governor of Massachusetts Bay, um, ordered an expedition uh, to march quickly out, uh, about 700 men uh, to march to Concord, where the Massachusetts shadow government was stockpiling weapons to Mm -hmm. seize those weapons, destroy what they couldn't carry. Uh, The the militia and Minutemen were alerted and started to oppose uh, the, uh, the, the British expo- expedition. Um, some exchange of fire took place at Lexington between the local militia and the Redcoats. Uh, Redcoats continued on to Concord uh, where there was a pretty pitched battle mm-hmm. uh, and, and a running fight ensued as the British retreated back to Boston mm-hmm. uh, along what's now called the Battle Road through back through Lexington to mm-hmm. Monotony and eventually to Cambridge.
0: So we had the British on the run that day. Yes. And my understanding is this is the day where the shots heard around the world?
1: Uh, The shot heard around the world is uh, the one that comes from the the poem of Mm -hmm. the the Concord Hymn, uh, which is at Lexington, uh, excuse me, Concord Bridge, Mm -hmm. which was actually the second engagement of the day.
0: Okay. And this is the day that we usually – Say that the American Revolution began.
1: That the Revolutionary War started. Uh, it ceased being a revol- uh, ceased being a, uh, a redress of grievances became open rebellion, and eventually, down the road became a war for independence.
0: And so, what did? The, the,
1: so this was April nineteenth.
0: Um, and what was the reaction with the Continental Congress? How, what did they do as a result of this? Well,
1: this was, like you said, April. The Continental Congress convened as the second Continental Congress in May. Um, and they passed resolutions for all the, the colonies to establish militia that could uh, repel uh, the British. And eventually, on June fourteenth, seventeen 1775, they resolved to raise um Ten companies of expert riflemen, six from Pennsylvania, two from Maryland, two from Virginia, uh, to serve as light infantry for the Army at Boston. The Army at Boston at the time was a Massachusetts Army. And uh, with this act, uh, it also became the Continental Army. So uh, So the Continental
0: Army formed June 14, 1775. Um, but they didn't know that yet in Boston. <laughs> they did not
1: know that in Boston. And the what was called the Massachusetts Army of Observation had the British under siege. Um, they decided to move a little closer and established uh, a redoubt on Bunker Hill and mm-hmm. then moved down a little further and established another on Breeds Hill. The British reacted. We had the Battle of Bunker Hill, mm-hmm. uh, although a tactical British victory. It was a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, in, in that it was uh, the, the Massachusetts soldiers inflicted horrendous casualties uh, on the British as they tried to attack. The British thought they could just show their bayonets mm. and the Americans would melt away, but they didn't.
0: They didn't. They, they stood. They stood firm. Eventually, they did have to withdraw. Right. They but,
1: ra- started running out of ammunition and the weight of numbers started to tell.
0: But it was it was a show of force and it uh, it really gave a lot of morale a morale yeah. boost to. The the militia or the Continental Army at the
1: time. Uh, that's right. It showed that the British redcoats were not invincible. Right.
0: right. And now at the same time, and of course in, in the day, they couldn't have known that in Boston, but um, Congress also determined who the commander-in-chief was going to be.
1: That's correct. Within a couple of days, they had decided on – they elected, actually, um, George Washington, one of the uh, representatives from Virginia to be the general and commander-in-chief – of the Army at Boston, the Army, the United Colonies, mm-hmm. and all forces raised or to be raised uh, for the defense of American liberty.
0: And when did Washington actually take command of the Army in Massachusetts?
1: He actually travels to Cambridge where he assumes command of the Army on the 3rd of July, 1775, mm-hmm. and his first general order. Uh, notifies the members of the Massachusetts Army of Observation that they are now in the pay and service of Congress, making them part of the Continental Army as well.
0: And tell me a little bit about before we get into some of these uh, these battles. Tell me a little bit about what the militia looked like. Were they, of course, in 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 that time frame? Were they just all white males, or you know what? The,
1: the laws of the various colonies required every able-bodied white male citizen usually aged between 18 and 45 or 18 and 60, depending on the colony, uh, to have a firearm, uh, a cartridge box, and ammunition, uh, a a bayonet, uh, and to assemble on occasion for training, which they follow the British 1764 manual and training. Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, so people had to bring their own weapons?
1: Yes, uh, that that was one of the requirements. Um, they, they had to have their own weapons to train with. If they were called into service by the king or whatever authority at the time, uh, they would be rearmed with a more standard weapon to make ammunition and logistics a little more easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, they trained with their own weapons. Right. And in an alarm, an emergency, they would use their own weapons. Mm-hmm.
0: And, then, and you said there were some, some freed slaves that were— Um, Yes, uh,
1: especially in Massachusetts, we know that uh, after the 19th of April uh, or maybe even on the 19th of April, Mm -hmm. some freed black men or um, slaves with their owner's permission or as substitutes for their owners uh, Mm -hmm. served in the militia and the Army of Observation as well.
0: And were those – did the black men – were they separated or were they mixed in?
1: They stood in the the ranks with their white mm -hmm. comrades. Okay. And there are also some Stockbridge Indians as well that mm-hmm. uh, volunteered and served in the Army of Observation and later the Continental Army as well.
0: Wow. So, all right, let's, so let's transition a little bit about some of these early battles. Um, so after after Bunker Hill, where, where did the fighting take place?
1: Well, really settled down into a stalemate as the the new Continental Army uh, lays siege to Boston, the British Army in Boston. And there was some fighting in Virginia, North Carolina during this period as well. And uh, the the, the Americans, uh, still colonies at this time, got the better of it uh, and, and ejected the British from both uh, both of those two colonies. Hmm. Uh, and in the meantime, to break the stalemate at Boston, uh, Henry Knox, who was a bookseller in Boston <laughs> and served as a volunteer and impressed Washington with his knowledge of fortifications and artillery, came up with an idea to go to uh, Ticonderoga, right. which had been captured by um, Ethan Allen and some Vermont militiamen and uh, uh, Benedict Arnold and some Massachusetts militiamen. Arnold actually inventoried all the guns there and Knox said, let me go to Ticonderoga and Crown Point, pick out some heavy artillery, bring it back to Boston and we can use it in the siege. And that's what they did. And uh-huh. um, they mounted them on a place called Dorchester Heights, uh, which made the city of Boston untenable, and put the British Navy in the harbor at risk. And the British evacuated Boston on the 17th of March, 1776. Yeah. So the, the movement of the artillery, I think this is kind of
0: epic in uh, a moment in, in uh, American military history. They moved this stuff because Ticonderoga is what, upstate New York.
1: Upstate New York on Lake Champlain.
0: And so they had to move this stuff during the winter.
1: Uh, Well, it it starts in late fall. Um, Mm -hmm. They move it by boat up Lake George uh, across the portage to the Hudson River, across the Hudson River by wagon as far as Albany. Then they had to wait for the Hudson River to freeze. (laughs) Then they put them on sleds, took them across the Hudson River. Over the Berkshire Mountains and eventually into uh, uh, Cambridge where Knox proudly presents General Washington with what he called a noble train of artillery.
0: <laughs> and again, as you said, it, it, it forced the British to withdraw from Boston.
1: Correct. So where did that army go? Uh, went to Halifax, Nova Scotia at first. Can't say Kennedy, because Canada didn't exist as a country. Hmm. Um, But the the British were going to react. The empire strikes back. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the uh, British mount the largest expeditionary force they had ever mounted. And it comes ashore at Staten Island Mm -hmm. in present-day New York. Uh, They eventually cross over where Washington's army had set up some fortifications uh, on Long Island near the, Hmm. the, the present city of Brooklyn or borough of Brooklyn, Uh, the British win that battle. Um, They push the Americans all the way back across New Jersey, across the Delaware River, and into Pennsylvania.
0: All right. And um, so let's leave that there for now. And I think we'll get into more of the battles in in the next episode. But what I want to talk to you about now is some of the weapons and their tactics. What did it look like back
1: then? Well, the standard infantry arm was the smoothbore flintlock musket, which took several movements to um, load, prime, and fire. Um, They first had to uh, empty powder down into the the barrel of the weapon, uh, put in the musket ball, tamp it down with the wadding, uh, put some primer (laughs) in the pan, uh, cock it, fire it, Uh, intricate series of movements. And then to get a whole company of soldiers to do that at one time took uh, quite a bit of drill. And this was essential for the linear tactics of the time. Uh, Today, it kind of seems silly where men stand 100 yards from each other Mm -hmm. blasting away without any cover because we're so used to rifled weapons and rapid fire and all that. But in these days, uh, the way you won a battle was putting more lead into the air than your opponent did and then once you sufficiently weaken the enemy to attack with the bayonet to finish them off. Um, so, you see the long lines of, of troops uh, facing mm-hmm. each other, and w- we shouldn't get the idea that when they fired a volley, we call it volley fire, but it didn't always everybody fire at once. It was a very intricate system what they called platoon firing, where a regiment was divided into divis- subdivisions, which was basically two companies, uh, and uh, two subdivisions made a grand division, and the gra- two grand divisions made a regiment, and the sequence of firing presented almost a constant rate of fire from different parts of the line uh, and not all one big volley usually. So there was constant firing.
0: And I think this gets to the point about how technology really drives tactics.
1: Yeah, uh, because th- these weapons were uh, smooth bore. Um, they weren't rifled. Uh, they they were Inaccurate by our standards, uh, so uh, casualty numbers are surprisingly light in these battles, uh, and, and uh, uh, like I said, it, it took to whoever could put the most lead in the air and then attack with a bayonet who determined winner or loser in these battles. So the
0: bayonet was a, was an important to bayonet to was very
1: important. When I mean, you have a weapon that only fires three shots a minute uh, uh, before it starts getting jammed up with spent mm-hmm. powder, uh, then you have to finish the battle with a uh, and uh, um, you know, You're not going to reload after you fire that final volley, mm-hmm. and when you make the attack, you don't have time to stop and reload, so the go-to weapon is the bayonet.
0: And then cavalry. Was there cavalry?
1: There was cavalry. uh, Not huge numbers like we'll see in the Napoleonic Wars in in, in several years. Cavalry is mostly used for scouting. Uh, When they do fight, they usually fight dismounted. Um, Mm. There are some fights where both sides' uh, cavalry remain mounted as they fight, but generally they would dismount to fight uh, and uh, used in an auxiliary scouting escort messenger role not usually in the, the big cavalry charges that you'll see in the Napoleonic Wars and then finally on artillery what was the
0: the role uh, of artillery in the battlefield uh, very
1: interesting uh, artillery uh, basically again is smoothbore uh, muzzle loading uh, you have three basic kinds of weapons you had the gun uh, which was the cannon that fires a solid projectile on a flat trajectory um, the cannonball is called shot. Also fired grape, which was smaller cannonballs clustered around a center pole, uh, and then you had canister, which was a can uh, like a can filled with musket-sized balls. Uh, those are basically uh, what was used by the gun. The howitzer. Uh, fired its uh, projectile, a shell, exploding shell, on an arced trajectory, uh, usually so the shell would explode over, above, or within an enemy formation. Mm -hmm. And then you had the mortar, uh, which fired bombs, uh, Mm -hmm. high-angle fire. uh, The bomb would go off uh, to destroy installations, fortifications, or send fragments uh, among enemy personnel. All
0: right, great. Um, Thank you, Glenn. I I think this is uh, a a lot of great information about the beginning of the American Revolution. And just one more tidbit here. um, American Revolution, uh, Revolutionary War, there is a difference from what I understand. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, it's often used interchangeably, but if you read into it, even the people at the time will tell you American Revolution started with the Stamp Act of 1765 and goes all the way until uh, the US Constitution is adopted in 1787 before it's ratified. Uh, The Revolutionary War, sometimes called the American War in those days, Hmm. uh, started on the morning of April 19th on Lexington Green uh, and ended with a British evacuation from New York in 1783 after the signing of the Treaty of Paris. Very good. And that's
0: something that I learned today. So uh, thank you, Dr. Williams. I'm always learning something from you, actually. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, as we close the, this episode, um, <clears throat> one of the things that I ask all of our guests is to share with us some um, what I call HUA trivia, some trivia that's going to you know, wow people about the era, the, the discussion that we just had. However, since this is the Revolutionary War era, uh, we call this the huzzah. Trivia. The, uh, I guess a huzzah was the term, uh, the hua of the day. If I, believe, if, I if I understand, yeah, we call it that. All right.
1: So, what is your huzzah trivia to share with us today? I I think that the there is a distinction between militia and minutemen. Sometimes we tend to use those terms interchangeably. Uh, in most colonies, the militia writ large was more of a body of available manpower to be used in an emergency, and every free white male citizen over the age of 18 uh, was usually required to participate. Minutemen, on the other hand, were select militia. Um, They trained more often. They were usually younger. Um, They were ready to go anywhere within uh, the colony on a minute's notice, hence Mm -hmm. the name. And uh, when they trained, um, since they did train more often, they were paid at the same rate as a British regular private was for the days they trained. Uh, and you know, we, we tend to say, well, the, the, the militia was like the National Guard. I say, no, the militia, I mean, the National Guard is more like the Minutemen of mm-hmm. the day, men who trained as an avocation, who got paid, uh, and who are better, and, and better trained, better organized, and better led.
0: And I think that the National Guard used the Minuteman as as a logo. The
1: the National Guard uses <laughs> the uh, the image of the Minuteman of Concord, which mm-hmm. is at Concord Bridge today, um, as the basis for their logo.
0: Great, great. Well, great, great trivia and great insights on on all of this information. Thanks so much, uh, Glenn Dr. Williams, for for your time today. And I think you're going to be joining us for um, the uh, the second in the series on the. Revolutionary War. So that'll be on the the next podcast. But thanks so much for joining us today, Glenn. Thank you, Lee. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Revolutionary War or Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and make sure you like and share them so that we can get more people excited about Army history. And please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army. Uh, History, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, and tactics, and lots of hua or huzzah trivia. So if you love Army history, you don't want to miss an episode. Thank you for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds, and until next time... We're history.
1: The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.